sponsor, StrongDM is secure infrastructure access for the modern stack. StrongDM proxies connections between your infrastructure and sysadmins, giving your IT team auditable, policy-driven, IAC-configurable access to whatever they need, wherever they are. Find out more at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. This episode of Day 2 Cloud is brought to you in part by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And we have a special offer for all you amazing Day 2 Cloud listeners. Sign up and save 30% off all plans. ITPro.tv slash Day 2 Cloud and use promo code Cloud at checkout to save 30% off all plans. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today's topic is why Terraform stinks. Well, I mean, maybe it doesn't stink. Maybe it just has like a faint odor or something. But we're talking to uh, Dan Moore. He is a developer advocate from Fusion Auth, and they tried using Terraform, and it, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, was it now, Ethan? It was not. And if there's one big takeaway I had from this episode, Ned, it is that just because something's super shiny and everybody seems to love it, doesn't mean it's right for you and you got to figure out what's right for you exactly uh, just going with well everybody else is using it i must be doing something wrong that's that's probably not true there's probably something unique about your situation and you need to find the tools that fit you and we're going to find out what tools fit dan and his team so with no further ado here is dan moore developer advocate at fusion auth well, Dan Moore, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. It is excellent to have you here and your slightly contentious topic of why Terraform stinks. <laughs> so we are going to get into that in a moment. But first, why don't you introduce yourself to the, the nice listeners out there? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Dan Moore, and I'm head of DevRel at a company called Fusion Auth. We're an auth service, something like Auth0 or Okta. And you know, the reason why I wrote that topic is because we tried to use Terraform for our product and not just once, but twice and found it flaws in it for our use case both times. So I wanted to share that with the wider world. Right. Yeah. And uh, that's not entirely surprising. I've tripped over some stumbling blocks in the world of Terraform as well. But uh, why don't we start out with uh, sort of the inverse of that? Because I'm curious... Uh, what attracted you initially to using Terraform for building out your infrastructure? Sure. So we're a, a, an engineering-driven company. Our founders are engineers, and the idea of having replicable environments is really attractive to all engineers. And the cloud with Terraform has let us uh, approach that. And so I think that they went with Terraform or we went with Terraform, excuse me, mostly because it was kind of the industry standard and we needed something. And so we said, hey, let's try this thing that's out there. And we were primarily on AWS and the AWS support for Terraform is, is pretty good. And, and by the way, sorry, I just want to jump in and maybe this is bearing the lead, but we still use Terraform, right? We, we've determined for some problem spaces, it doesn't work. And then for others, and I can talk about that later if we want, it most definitely does. Well, let's get into what you were trying to build with Terraform, because you, you've got this application, Fusion Auth, and there's some architecture there and so on. So describe that for us so we understand what you were trying to get Terraform to do for you. Sure. Yeah. So I think uh, Fusion Auth is interesting because it's the, so we have, we have two offerings. We have a uh, downloadable version of Fusion Auth that you can run yourself. Mm. And then we have one that we run in the cloud. And so unlike most SaaS applications where you have one code base and one database and you do logical separation of the tenants within that database, Right via you know a request comes in with a certain host name that lets you look up a value in a database, which lets you kind of load all that tenant's data and logically segment that. Fusion Auth, because we're downloadable, we actually have a different approach. We actually spin up separate infrastructure in our cloud, and that lets us you know it offers a number of benefits, but one of the big ones is it's the same code base, right? So if you download Fusion Auth and run it yourself, or if you run it in the cloud, it's the same code base. It's not like we took the SaaS version of it and kind of shrunk it down. 
Um, so you, so you're not, means, in other words, this is not a multi-tenant SaaS app. It's a single-tenant SaaS app of which you run many different copies. 100%, yes. So basically, everybody who goes to the, the, the website and signs up, they get their own compute nodes, their own database, uh, their own network infrastructure, all provisioned automatically because you couldn't possibly provision all this in a good way by hand. And so... So what that ends up leaving you with is just hundreds of different prod environments, right? Because everybody who pays us, you know, some people pay us for staging environments, but most people pay us for prod environments. So there are, it's not like a SaaS where you have one prod environment and you have a staging, but that's not really, you know, there's no PII in there. With Fusion Auth Cloud, we have hundreds of different prod environments. Wow. So if I'm thinking about the architecture here and and correct me where, where I'm wrong, it's, you're spinning up a VPC per customer and it's not like it's one big shared VPC and everybody's got their own compute instances in there. And then layered on top of that are all the other components that make up your solution. So that's, that's a lot of infrastructure. So, so just to be totally clear, we're not spinning up a VPC per customer uh, because I think there's like a limited number of VPCs you can have in AWS, but mm-hmm. we're spinning up security groups and, you know, their own network infrastructure. I don't think we've done a separate accounts yet, but that certainly is something that we've talked about. Each person is in their own separate AWS account, but yes, it is a lot of different infrastructure. It's, it's a number of different pieces and there's some external to AWS stuff as well in terms of monitoring and things like that. But all this needs to be stood up and not just stood up, it needs to be run. And we don't upgrade often, but we do want people to upgrade periodically. And so it's this very, I find it an interesting architectural paradigm. And I can talk about why I think it's valuable, but like from a Terraform standpoint, it's not a typical Terraform standpoint, right? Like there's not five different environments that you're making changes that you're moving through. It's really a number of one environment or maybe Wow. So I'm curious what made you select that architecture instead of building something that was more of a multi-tenant architecture where, like you said, you have a single database or maybe it's like three or four really big databases with a whole bunch of application servers that are handling that instead of the way that you that you decided to go. Yep. Um, Well, I think there's there's a number of reasons. First, I think that. and I should say real briefly that within FusionAuth itself, you can actually have multiple tenants. Mm. So if someone's using us as an identity server, which is what we offer, they can have tenant A, tenant B, tenant C logically separated within their FusionAuth instance. So you actually have this weird like single tenant, but then multi-tenant for the <laughs> end consumer. Right. But that's, let's set that aside. That's just a product feature. Uh, so the reason why we went this way, there were a number of reasons. One, I think that auth data is really, really attractive to people who are looking for holes in security. Mm. And physical isolation is a just another layer, right? It's defense in depth. And so um, there's that benefit. There's the benefit of performance. Again, login is something where people only notice performance when it's bad and you are the front door of the application, you want to be quick. And so by using separate infrastructure, we had, well, we have a noisy neighbor problem in the sense that everybody on AWS has a noisy neighbor problem, but (laughs) it's a lot smaller than the noisy neighbor problem that you would have if if you were stuffing everybody onto the same um, servers. And then I think the third one is just keeping that code base the same. Right. So again, we have a downloadable product. It's free for people to use. It's one of our main growth growth drivers, but we didn't want to have a special version of FusionAuth that was kind of multi-tenant and was designed for the cloud. We just took the version that we'd previously been building and set up things so that um, it would actually install on the cloud. Like, I mean, to be honest with you, I think we use the same tarballs to install FusionAuth when you're on the, that cloud VM as we would if you download it and install it yourself. It's the same thing, which, you know, just keeps us honest. Wow. Okay. Then that I, I can see, yeah, authentication and authorization information is like super duper important and that's a high value target. So if one of those instances get compromised, then it only impacts that one customer. But 
if if the multi-tenant solution gets compromised, then you're leaking data for hundreds right. or thousands of customers. That's that's bad. <laughs> that sounds like a resume generating event that you would encounter. <laughs> Definitely. The wrong kind of resume generating event, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. So um let, let's start with the with the initial setup. Uh, of uh, a new tenant. I, I go to your website, I sign up for your service, and I'm going to have a new environment, a new tenant built out for me. Um, what does that look like on the back end? Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, how what issues did you encounter building out that initial architecture? Sure. So, and just so I'm clear, like you, you're, you're asking, asking about because we like i said we've evolved this a couple of times so do you want kind of the initial like hey this is our first attempt at doing this and can't we can talk to the evolution yeah let's let's kind of walk through that so um you know the very first time you tried to do it sure. <laughs> what was that like and what issues did you trip over yeah so we had a we have a, a we're a java shop so we have a job application that was basically the control plane and you would log in and give your payment details and you know, press a button and we would basically call out to terraform and i believe I, i'm not sure about the details so i'm not going to go too far into them but i believe we were actually calling like the command line mm. so basically saying hey here's this terraform plan build it all and so it, it would uh, you know again it would build the the security groups and the network infrastructure it would stand up one or more ec2 instances it would stand up in some cases an rds instance it would stand up our monitoring solution um certificates uh one of the route 53 like dns stuff mm -hmm. and would basically do that kind of all at once and one of the issues we ran into is that uh you know, when you're doing that one off, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. But when you're doing that, you know, a couple of times or many times a day, you end up running into, into failures mm. and Terraform really doesn't like failures and doesn't like starting from the middle. And so we'd have people who'd get halfway through the setup. And again, depending on the size of the instances you want, or RDS in particular, we found to be pretty slow to stand up. Um, and so you might get through setting up the servers uh, or setting up RDS, but not, not be able to set the servers. Servers might fail. And we ended up getting a situation where we had two kind of equally <laughs> distasteful alternatives. The first is someone manually goes in, logs in and like tweaks things around to mm. like uh, continue the process or you tear it all down and you stand up again and you just hope that the second time Terraform succeeds. And that just got really, really rickety. And so that was one of the reasons that we decided to go to the next version of, of our attempt to do with Terraform. So but, Dan, the, the failures you're describing, they're not failures that are like, oh, we tried to use Terraform twice in a day. And you know, Terra, who, who does that? Terraform can't do that. You're saying when you're attempting to do multiple builds, the odds increase that something in the infrastructure stack you're asking Terraform to stand up, some component in there within the AWS environment, it just doesn't go right, you're saying. <laughs> Or the external service, right? Like, again, we use an external monitoring service and that was problematic. But yes, yeah, I don't want to blame Terraform for that, right? Like, it was the resources that ABS we were trying to get from AWS and it might be just took a long time or, you know, and people got impatient or it might be that it did kind of barf in the middle. And yeah, so again, I think part of the issue is that the state of Terraform is this opaque black box. Mm. And you trust Terraform to own it entirely. At least in this in this situation, that's what we were doing. We we're saying Terraform, you own it. And Terraform, our experience was that Terraform was not good at, at like dealing with these kind of outlier situations of like, okay, we want you to start again in the middle of this, and um, or or wait for a long time for this RDS instance to to, to provision. Yeah, so I don't want to blame Terraform too much because I think it's the underlying resources or, or the problem was we just happened to encounter it a lot. Another example of something that we saw um, was instance IDs changing and Terraform, because it kind of uses that in its own internal state, didn't really like that very much at all. And again, we had to kind of manually go in and, and, and change things, um, mm. do some kind of care and feeding. That right. was not something we wanted to do. Right, right. Because in the state 
file, it does the mapping of what's in the config for an EC2 instance to the instance ID. And yeah. if for some reason that instance ID changed on the AWS side, Terraform doesn't know that. So it's going to go, oh, the instance ID, the instance gone. I'm going to recreate it now. Totally. Totally. Yeah, that can lead yep. to some conflicts. So I, I think one of the main benefits you were looking for from Terraform was the idea of orchestrating a build, like building out the whole thing. Yep. Uh, and in your initial assessment, were you kind of hoping that Terraform would handle not just the deployment, but sort of the retry logic of, of if something goes sideways? Yeah, the, oh, the retry logic, the waiting logic, uh, right? Like, hey, just keep trying again until this thing stands up. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the orchestration, and this actually is something that it's worth, worth calling out. Like, Terraform is really good at parallelization and walking that dependency tree and saying, oh, there's five resources here and two of them are at the beginning and then the other three depend on them. So I'm going to start the first two. And uh, we really like that, right? Because that helped us get to our, the end state, which is what we wanted, which is all those components stood up faster. But um, we ended up, you know, just not being able to make that work. Okay. Okay. We pause the podcast for a couple of minutes to introduce sponsor StrongDM's Secure Infrastructure Access Platform. And if those words are meaningless, StrongDM goes like this. You know how managing servers, network gear, cloud VPCs, databases, and so on, it's this horrifying mix of credentials that you saved in PuTTY and in super secure spreadsheets and SSH keys on thumb drives and that one doc in SharePoint you can never remember where it is. It sucks, right? StrongDM makes all that nasty mess go away. Install the client on your workstation and authenticate. Policy syncs, and you get a list of infrastructure that you can hit. When you fire up a session, the client tunnels to the strong DM gateway, and the gateway is the middleman. You know, it, it's a proxy architecture. So the client hits the gateway, and the gateway hits the stuff you're trying to manage, but it's not just a simple proxy. It is a secure gateway. The StrongDM admin configures the gateway to control what resources users can access. The gateway also observes the connections and logs who is doing what, database queries and kubectl commands, etc. And that should make all the security folks happy. Life with StrongDM means you can reduce the volume of credentials you are tracking. If you're the human managing everyone's infrastructure access, you get better control over the infrastructure management plane. You can simplify firewall policy. You can centrally revoke someone's access to everything they had access to with just a click. StrongDM invites you to 100% doubt this ad and go sign up for a no BS demo. Do that at strongdm.com slash packet pushers. They suggested we say no BS. And if you review their website, that is kind of their whole attitude. They solve a problem you have and they want you to demo their solution and prove to yourself it will work. Strongdm.com slash packet pushers and join other companies like Peloton, SoFi, Yext, and Chime. Strongdm.com slash packet pushers. And now back to the podcast. Another thing that I saw you call out in in the the this is based off a talk you gave, right? So yep. I was looking through the notes and one other thing that I a couple other things that I noticed. One was state maintenance. You mentioned, or at least it was a bullet point in the talk about state maintenance. And I'm sure. curious, like that, that was a promise that Terraform was making to you, but that could mean a couple different things. So when you put state maintenance in there, what did you have in your mind or in your vision of what state maintenance could mean? So state maintenance for us was really the fact that we didn't want just, we're not going to just fire and forget this once. We're going to actually upgrade this over time. And that could include changes to the various pieces of the infrastructure, um, upgrading EC2 instances, uh, and, and um, you know, or RDS instances as they needed to happen. And so uh, Terraform didn't do a bad job providing that. Uh, we did, we ended up using Terraform state files, which I think I wasn't intimately involved in that choice. Um, I think that there are other solutions out there for Terraform that handle locking better than Terraform state files, but that is the, the choice that we went with. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, that would, that would definitely, uh, be a little bit difficult, uh, if, in, instead of using something like an S3 bucket to hold state data with DynamoDB or 
use right. Postgres or or any of the other sort of remote state solutions that have a ton of locking and stuff built into them. I, I mean, I think what we end up doing because we we basically don't forget we don't have multiple people you know addressing this. It's the one application that's addressing this, and we ended up actually pushing the state the, the state file into a database column mm. and then kind of pulling it out and setting it down and then running Terraform against that. So some of this, you know, could have been a little bit of a, I don't want to say Rube Goldberg. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure, you know, we gave Terraform a couple of shakes and then after a while we just said, Hey, well, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to jump, jump ahead, but um <laughs> I will not. How do I put this politely? I just want to be careful here. Um, I am not going to say that there is not something that a Terraform, uh, you know, super expert couldn't have done to make our problem better with Terraform. Gotcha. Might be a good way to put it. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. But you always have the constraint of time and who's available to work on it, and especially yeah. if you're, a, you know, a startup or a smaller company. You can only spend so much time on each problem. <laughs> you can move on to the you next. Gotta, you gotta make it work, right? And there were plenty of other things that just worked. So, yeah. In fact, in your talk, you highlighted a bunch of things that you, that Terraform said, "I can do this," and you said, "We're interested in that," and, yep. and some things that maybe were of less interest to you. But you mentioned like orchestration and state maintenance, which we were talking about here, and the standard interface, uh, the common config language. Can you, can you walk through those? What, what of those were? interesting and exciting too and which of those did you not care about so much in your use case sure yeah so the orchestration piece was really important for us and again i kind of mentioned that we just wanted to get our system set up as quickly as possible and uh, again i wish we, we wanted terraform to kind of own the whole thing which is why we tried to use it that way you know when a customer uh, a fusion auth customer would would say yes make me the thing did that kick off a terraform process or was yep. there some human in the middle so okay nope. so terraform was summoned at that point terraform was summoned yep it basically after the credit card was charged of course right you gotta you gotta make, <laughs> yeah. a, make a living um but yes we would basically say okay uh this person wanted you know because the the application would would collect like what region they wanted to be in and some other information and we would configure all that and we'd say okay terraform go forth this again this is version one Terraform, go, go forth and make this. And so um, that was super attractive. Uh, you know, in our use case, the standard interface mattered less. You know, we are an AWS shop and we're on a bunch of different regions, but we aren't worried about, uh, we aren't using a ton of different providers. And I think that is where Terraform can really be useful because it lets you deal with uh, different cloud providers, different, um, different, even different like SaaS providers with kind of a standard like, hey, everything's a provider interface. But we were only using AWS and and uh, Status Kick, our monitoring tool. Uh, common configuration language. Again, we were we were Java developers, and so you know we didn't really care that much about having you know using HCL. And then the big one is, I think that caption config changes over time in complex systems is where a tool like Terraform or an IAC tool can really, really shine because, you know, it's the whole GitOps model where you have your document and your document is, or documents, you know, a bunch of different Terraform modules and you're making changes over time to a very complicated system, right? So you want to be able to say, okay, who punched a hole in the security group for this, um, this port or who changed, um, you know, the, um, the, this particular database parameter or anything like that. But when you're, when you're dealing with a large number of systems, we were far more likely to, um, if someone wanted to upgrade and they wanted like a really substantial change, right? They wanted to move from, you know, a single server to a multi-node configuration. We're much more likely to take an export of our database and destroy the old system and send up the new system kind of fresh from scratch, right? So mm -hmm. very, very cattle uh, oriented mm -hmm. solution because all of our state is really in the database and that's really all we cared about. So we didn't have this evolution of things over time that I think Terraform can be really, really good at because it lets you, you know, keep that, that auditable change log 
and like commit history. Right, right. Okay. So I think I have a pretty good idea of what you were in, what made Terraform attractive to you. And, you know, I think we talked uh, through some of the initial issues you ran into when you were trying to deploy infrastructure for a new for a new user. Um, and it sounds like you also ran into some issues when you were trying to upgrade existing customers because Terraform wasn't necessarily fitting the operational model that you were trying to work with. Right. Yeah. I mean, as I alluded to or mentioned earlier, like, you know, we had everything in the database. And uh, so sometimes we would just say, you know, upgrade these just these DC2 instances, but Terraform would get confused because it was trying to upgrade the RDS instance as well. And we didn't want that to happen. And even if we set like delete um, or we tried to delete the RDS instance, which is even worse. Um, and if we set delete protection to true, Terraform would get in this hung state and it could move forward, could move back. And then you ended up having to kind of, again, um, manually troubleshoot. And that was one of the things we were trying to, again, stay away from. Right. You're trying to automate and orchestrate. Each time you got to go in and manually touch it, you're like, dang it. That's not what I was looking for. Here. Totally. <laughs> Dan, I know the cloud never, ever fails, obviously, especially AWS. But let's say it did. Uh, you know, there was some sort of a cloud failure and change that infrastructure that Terraform was looking at. How did it handle that situation? So the question is like when there was something that kind of underneath the covers that, that that, or not under the covers, but behind Terraform that changed, like that instance ID we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. changing or something like that. Yeah, uh, you know, Terraform didn't like that very much, right? It wanted to be kind of the sole owner of things. And uh, again, I don't want to bag on Terraform too hard. Like there are ways to work around it. Uh, when things change, you can kind of re-import uh, resources and things like that to refresh the state. But like, again, that's not something you can automate. Right. Like by definition, the failure in the cloud is something that you haven't really planned for. So to be able to think that you could automate the the air condition of that was um, was problematic. Hmm. OK. Um, so I know your first attempt was to do everything with Terraform and that that didn't work out. Uh, so attempt number two, what did that look like? How, how did your deployment and upgrade process evolve from V1 to V2 of the automation journey. Sure, sure. So with V2, we said, well, this orchestration thing, we're, we're running into issues with this, even though it's one of the pieces we really like about Terraform. Um, we've just run into too many roadblocks where it's just um, not succeeding and not succeeding in a way that the failure state is something that we can handle in an automated fashion. So what we did is we said, well, we're gonna still use Terraform provider um, all these different Terraform providers, and we're just going to run the orchestration layer ourselves. And so we are going to build out in Java, in our application, basically the state machine that starts things off. And, you know, I think that went okay, but, uh, you know, some of the issues were that um, you lose a major benefit for Terraform, right, of the... Um, the orchestration. And then we ran into situations where, um, I just want to pull this up. Um, but, well, okay. So we had to build our own orchestration. Um, we couldn't use that parallelization logic. Uh, we ran into situations where we wanted to wait for certain things to be done. And then we would call off other things, right? And this is where, again, Terraform provides a lot of value. And the Terraform providers didn't, they weren't consistent in whether they gave us that information. So some places had, you know, again, you stand up your RDS instance and you want to wait until that's all good to go before you start an EC2 instance. I don't know about the RDS provider in specifics, but I know that especially, um, I think, status cake was one that really caused us a lot of pain. We wanted to stand up a monitoring solution and we wanted to wait until, you know, to deliver kind of the final, um, you know, this product is finished mm -hmm. until that we wanted to wait till the monitoring solution was available, but we, it, it was super, um, spotty like you know, sometimes we had to i think we even try set up things to retry like 10 times and it still sometimes would fail. And again, I just want to 
to reemphasize, I realize that's not Terraform's fault, right? That is not Terraform's fault that that some other SaaS service that just provided a Terraform provider uh, didn't do a good job of meeting its promises. But that still meant that you know that was the interface that we were using, and if and we were limited to that interface if we decided to stick with Terraform. Right, right, yeah. If I could like say that back to you a little bit, what what I'm hearing is you're dealing with a couple different abstraction layers here. You're dealing with the the actual API that whatever service you're using, the SaaS service you're using provides. It has an API, but then they wrote the Terraform provider, which interacts with that API, but it uses the Terraform constructs of how to create things, how to check the status of things, how to test whether you know all the attributes match and all that. So that has to be written properly and, and in good shape. And then you're also relying on Terraform itself and HCL to properly interact with that provider and the API. So everybody has to be well behaved. <laughs> if anybody's dropping the ball there, um, it just doesn't work very well. Yep. Yep. And another issue we ran into with this particular version is we decided to upgrade from 0.12 to 0.13. And again, I mentioned we had our Terraform state stored off all over the place. Uh, and one of the things that we offer to people as part of the SaaS operation is they have control over their versions of the software that's running. Mm. And so sometimes people will run for a long period of time without upgrading because again, an auth server is something that you want to just work. You want to put it away and you, you know, once it's working, you don't want to mess with it because you're working on other pieces of your application. And so we had people who were running for months or years without upgrading. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, Terraform was moving along and we ended up um, having to maintain both, both the 0.12 and 0.13 Terraform state files. And then again, in the database, um, I don't think we stored them both. I think we just stored uh, a, a switch that said, hey, this server's on Terraform 1.2, and this one's on 0.13. To be fair, um, later versions of Terraform supposedly solved this issue of, of the <laughs> compatibility between the states. But when we were building this out, we worked with what we had. I see. Okay. So the thing that was orchestrating the, the config and the build, um, that was each tenant was pinned to one version or the other. And so it wasn't until they chose to upgrade their environment that you would make the jump to the newer version of Terraform to deploy that upgraded environment. Uh, well, and there's multiple versions of upgrades that we're talking about here, right? Or multiple kinds, right? There's upgrades of just the Fusion Auth application where we probably wouldn't jump versions of Terraform. And then there's versions of the underlying, underlying hardware, right? Or the VMs. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all hardware someplace, but <laughs> Somewhere. The, the VMs <laughs> where we would probably tear down and then rebuild with the later version of Terraform. Okay, yeah. so yeah, because you mentioned that before, where if it was going to be a significant upgrade, you would extract uh, the state from the database, tear the whole thing down, build it back up, load the state into the new database, and away they go. Happy customers. So that would be yep. the opportunity to make that jump from one one version to the other. Yep. Um, I will say uh, the good news <laughs> is that I think starting with Terraform 0.15, um, they made the state backwards compatible. Um, and that's going to be for major versions going forward. So newer versions will be able to read the older version of the state without changing whether or not the older versions of Terraform will can interact with it. So yeah, they did fix that, but that was a big, big problem in, in .12 and .13 uh, and, yeah. and previous versions. Guy, if you went from .11 to .12, I'm glad you skipped that disaster. <laughs> yeah and good on them for making that, that i mean i understand that we actually run into the backward compatibility issue sometimes too right like mm -hmm. because we're building an auth server and we've had uh one or two breaking changes over the years but we try to minimize them and i've seen contortions that our code has to go through to maintain backward compatibility and it is a real price to pay but the the win of course is that your developers are much happier and mm -hmm. the people that are building on top of you have more confidence because they know you've made that promise. So I'm glad that Terraform, you know, listened to their community enough, or maybe it was their customers. I'm not sure what drove in that decision, but that's a phenomenal decision with not without engineering costs, but it's still a good decision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to interrupt the podcast for a minute here to talk about IT training. 
You remember the ransomware attack on the gas pipeline last year? It caught your attention probably, caught mine. There's a key thing here. Cybersecurity professionals are in demand to prevent that kind of thing, but there are not enough humans out there to fill all the positions. There's over 500,000 open cybersecurity roles. You can become a cybersecurity professional if you get some training, some online training. It is never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder. IT Pro TV has you covered for your training. They cover everything. CompTIA to Cisco to EC Council to Microsoft. They, they've got all of it, including the cloudy stuff. More than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. And, and the way they present the information, you know, some presenters are like, they're reading from the book and they're super boring. That is not IT Pro TV's format at all. They use engaging hosts that they're going to present the information in a talk show format and really keep it interesting. And they do it live. They, they're live every day. And then once they recorded that live show, it goes studio to web in 24 hours. As you're digging through their website, looking for content, all the courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, job role. You can find what you're looking for without a lot of trouble. And then when you pick the thing and you're ready to go, you can stream IT Pro TV's courses, uh, either the live stuff or the on-demand stuff from anywhere in the world via whatever platform you like, Roku, Apple TV, PC, or there's apps on iOS or Android. Learn IT, pass your certs, and then get a great job, maybe in cybersecurity, with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash day2cloud for 30% off all plans. Use promo code cloud at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash day2cloud. Day2cloud is day, the number two, cloud, and then use promo code cloud at checkout. One more time, itpro.tv slash day2cloud and use promo code cloud at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now let's get back to the podcast. So this the second attempt that you were talking about, now you had uh, a whole bunch of tiny Terraform configurations that were deploying separate components and storing their state individually. Is that Was that the updated structure? Yep. That sounds messy. <laughs> really hard to orchestrate. Yeah, you know, I think that maybe this was a stepping stone. Right. Mm. Um, and because the next phase is just cut out Terraform entirely. I think that we still wanted a little bit of that provider abstraction and, um, you know, not necessarily coding directly against the APIs, but really, honestly, I think that the orchestration piece, let me put it this way. I didn't, I wasn't responsible for this code, but if I put my architecture hat on, the move from going, having everything done by, Terraform to everything done by code feels like a really big jump. Whereas mm -hmm. having the orchestration moved, basically yanked out from Terraform into the job application and then have like all the interfaces, of the APIs done by Terraform still, um, that feels like a smaller piece. Uh, uh, so more of an evolution of environments. And I think we were still hoping that that Terraform would would work for us. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, we just kind of ran into some other issues. And, you know, if you ask me, um, apart from the evolution piece, it does feel like we're not, you know, I, I think Terraform works best when it's kind of, again, to, to Terraform's credit, it works best when it owns the state. Mm -hmm. right? And now we were suddenly a place where it didn't, even know that like each of those little bits of terraform i call it polylithic terraform um in my talk each of those little bits of terraform didn't have any idea about anything else and i just don't know that that is a great place to use terraform and in fact you did end up uh on kind of like a version three here where there was no terraform involved in the infrastructure stand up right yep yep so you moved everything then into code did you did you have to write your own state maintenance reconciliation that kind of stuff yeah yeah, so we did, and it, it it basically it's a state machine, and so we have um, I think it's in the database. We store like where we are when we stand things up. So if we're on step four and um, things fail, right? Uh, the 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 control plane gets uh, application gets disrupted or updated or goes down for a reason or ABS fails to to provision one of the resources. It's very easy for us to 
because again, basically we <laughs> we recreated the Terraform state file in a format that we controlled and we understood. And so now we can go, okay, step four is where this thing failed. I'm going to restart right at step four. And because, and again, I think this points to the uniqueness of our solution. Our solution in Fusion on the Cloud is pretty straightforward. It's, you know, eight or 10 components. It's a database uh, driven web application. And so we are not bringing in arbitrary other components at this time. So it's pretty easy for us to build a, a state machine where it's really robust and we're not going to next sprint add in another piece of architectural infrastructure yeah. or yeah, probably yeah. for the foreseeable future. Right? It, it looked very, uh, that slide, you had a slide that you showed in your presentation of that architecture and it did look very familiar. Uh, yep. Load balancer on the front end, a couple of servers in the middle, database on the back end, some security, some networking, and you, yeah, wh whatever the other miscellaneous components yep. were. Looks, yep. Again, awfully familiar. So, uh, it, so you, you were willing to take it on and code yourself because it wasn't this Rube Goldberg machine of components to make a Fusion Auth instance and stand it up for a customer. It was reasonably straightforward. Right. And again, I think that and it, and it was forward and it was reasonably like compact and reasonably static. Uh, whereas, again, I think what place where Terraform shines is when you're bringing in small changes over a long period of time, like you might in a multi-tenant SaaS environment. But here, we really aren't. We're just standing things up. And then maybe once in a while, we're swapping out VMs or databases or things like that. But um, that's what I think made it more of a containable code solution. Um, when I did give the talk a while back, somebody actually asked whether we could open source this orchestration layer. I <laughs> do not think that that's something we can extract right now, but I think that there was some interest in that because I think that we're not the only people to have run into um, not necessarily being thrilled with how Terraform orchestrates things mm -hmm. and wanting well, maybe a little more control. You haven't said Pulumi. I've kept waiting for you to say that. You wrote, you wrote this yourself rather than leveraging uh, Pulumi, for instance. Did yeah. Pulumi or any other tools even come up? You know, I, I wasn't involved in that conversation. I think that... How do I put this? Um, I don't know whether we got frustrated with third-party tools because of our experience with Terraform and just weren't yeah. willing to stick our heads up and look around or whether we got in a situation where, you know, how sometimes you take one or two steps into the bog and then you're just like, oh, I got to get through the bog. Um, <laughs> but I, and, so and it was I, a small bog. It was a pretty bounded problem. If you said, well, so. talk to me in two years, right? Like that <laughs> might be the point where we're like, right. this was a bigger bog than we thought. But as of right now, we've been running V3 for almost nine months, I think, and we're super happy with it. Um, I personally haven't, I know people who work at Pulumi or I know of people who work at Pulumi. I have not actually taken the time to kind of dig in and look at any of those. Um, so, so what do you think the trade-offs are then? You said you've been happy for nine months, but surely you run into some trade-offs of going, going your own road, walking through that bog, as sure. opposed to uh, leaning on Terraform for so many of the functions you were relying on it for before. I mean, I think the biggest one is, is frankly, we're going to have a hard time hiring for this, mm. right? Because you're, you're going to have to find a DevOps person who also knows Java and is comfortable in that environment and wants to work in that environment. And um, I, you know, right now that hasn't been an issue for us uh, because we've been able to have our, our, our a couple of Java, longtime Java devs. Um, actually, the founder of the company is one of the major writers of this piece of software. And so um, it's been relatively stable uh, a few kind of additions here, but more, um, you know, like there was one addition where they let, where we could rebuild a node or upgrade a node size. Um, but it's, as far as kind of the, the fundamental infrastructure that, that users actually interact with, it's been pretty stable for nine months. Hmm. Wow. I mean, that, that's really, it's very encouraging to hear that you found yourself in that. And, you know, there's always a road back. You can always build a bridge over the bog, maybe with one of these third-party <laughs> tools. We can stretch the analogy just a little oh, yeah. bit further without completely breaking it. Um, so, does that mean right now you're writing the the solution in Java and you're just importing the the SDK for AWS to deploy the components? Yep. 
Okay. Now, yeah. you kind of teased this towards the, the beginning of the episode. I wanted to bring it back up here now um, that you are still using Terraform in some portions uh, of your of your uh, solution. So where are you using Terraform today? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we use Terraform for two kind of twins of the barbell. Uh, the first is environments that are super ephemeral. So if we need to stand up an environment to run load tests or stand up an environment to for for a new developer to to you to test against, um, we'll use Terraform for that. And then the other thing we do is if we have long lived configuration changes. So an example is um, standing up a VPC or standing up. Um, I know that we track our we have we use the web application firewall from AWS, sure. and I know that we track like. Um, IP addresses get whitelisted or the rules for the the WAF um, because we have certain rate limiting rules. That all gets done in Git first, well, in Terraform and then applied via Terraform to, to that situation. So again, and I think that's where Terraform is great because now we can say, oh, um, ticket one, two, three, four, that's tied to this commit in Terraform. And when that customer leaves, or well, no, none of our customers ever leave. No, uh, when never. that customer upgrades, uh, <laughs> we can change um, the uh, that whitelist or that allow list. So uh, those are kind of the two ends of the spectrum where we've still found Terraform to be pretty useful. Okay, yeah, great. Um, so I'm curious. You did mention you gave this talk a little while ago, and you know, time marches on. It's been nine months since the solution. I'm curious if anything significant has changed about how you're approaching infrastructure's code since you gave the talk, or have there been any new surprises or lessons learned that didn't make it into the talk? You know, I think that one of the surprises was I mentioned that people, someone wanted us to open source it. That was surprising to me after I gave the talk, uh, because I, I did think this would be kind of bespoke solution that wouldn't really be of interest to other folks. Um, other than that, you know, I guess this is always the trade-off you make. And actually, I was actually in a, a, a Twitter space yesterday. We we're talking about build versus buy. Mm. And the question is, is this enough of a secret sauce that it is worth this investment that we're making, right? Because a developer's time is very precious and our founder's time is very precious. And is this special enough that it's worthwhile for us to have built it ourselves? Um, and I think right now, the maintenance burden is low enough that we're happy with that. But I do, you know, I mean, we're all human beings. I do wonder whether, um, how do I put this? Maybe cut that we're all human beings part. That was kind of a sideways note. <laughs> um, are there any? I have, uh, other than the fact that I, if we talk to me after we tried to hire someone else to do the founder's job, that's the real <laughs> question for me, right? Like, will it be possible for us to hand, to, to let him move on to a higher leverage activity and have this code base still maintained and still understandable right now he's the one doing it and it's working great. That's, that's probably the single biggest risk I would say for this approach. Right. If we had stick, stuck with Terraform, let's ignore the operational concerns, the development concerns. I can go out and find a cloud engineer who might want to do it in Python or some some other language or Go, but they'll be able to extend this architecture fairly easily. Um, finding another Java dev who's and I alluded to this earlier, finding another, or I said this earlier, finding another job dev who's an expert in infrastructure and interested in building, can maintain a bespoke solution. Um, I'm not sure those people are, are thick on the ground. And, and I mean, frankly, that actually is an argument for open sourcing it, right? If right. we can somehow extract it out, that actually makes it more attractive, I think, to, to other talent. And I, I do think that you shouldn't drive your entire architecture based on making sure you can hire someone because that's um, that leads to a lot of shiny object syndrome. <laughs> but that is probably the biggest risk I see as someone who's um, you know involved in the company but not 
intimately involved in, in upgrading this code base. Right, right. That long-term maintenance of it and the, the founder's dilemma of how do I step away from you know driving the car to telling somebody else how to drive a fleet of cars. So that's <sighs> right. That's definitely something uh, that you're, you might have to address at some point. Um, and maybe Terraform will be a good fit at that point because it'll have matured to a, a degree where it, it is the proper solution for you. But for the way you wanted to use it, it just didn't make sense. It, it didn't. And, you know, I, I think that... Um... We got, uh, there's, there's, Ethan made a good point about we should, if and when we want to go to V4, we should absolutely pop our heads up and do a couple of spikes, a couple of POCs with some of the newer tools that are out there, right? Like Terraform 1, I think hit, hit that 1.0 recently, mm-hmm. um, but certainly Pulumi is, is another option that uh, I've heard good things about. But at that point, you know, again, there's opportunity costs too. Right. So. Absolutely. Well, Dan, we'll have to have you back on again in like a year when you hit V4 and and see how this journey has progressed and, and changed. Uh, for folks who want to hear more about this, um, is there somewhere they can view the talk or at least just see the slides? Um, you know, people can send me an email if they want, and I will get them a copy of the slides. We don't actually have them out public, I don't think. And unfortunately, the conference that I gave the talk at did not uh, record it. Okay, so. well, we just heard the whole talk, right? People can do that. Uh, if folks, well, no, no, no. You heard the talk plus plus because we had my two excellent hosts who chimed in with their own perspectives. <laughs> so it was an even better version of the talk. Well, there we go. All right. Uh, if folks want to know more about you, where can they find you on the internet? Sure. So uh, probably the easiest is uh, Twitter, which is uh, twitter.com slash more DS, M-O- M-O-O-R-E-D-S or Dan at FusionAuth.io is my email address or FusionAuth.io. Um, I blog there and that's the company's website. Okay. We will include all of that information as links in the show notes. Dan Moore, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, listeners out there, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. You know, we're always looking for ideas and topics for new shows and we want to know what you think. What, what would you find interesting? Uh, Ethan and I both monitor the Twitter handle at Day2CloudShow, so you can send a message through the Twitter sphere, and we'll hear you. If that's not your thing, that's cool. I have a website called nedinthecloud.com, and there's a form on there you can fill out and make suggestions that way as well. Did you know you don't have to scream into the technology void alone? The Packet Pushers Podcast Network has a free Slack group that's open to everyone. Visit packetpushers.net slash Slack and join. It's a marketing-free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories, and maybe even solve some problems together. Once again, that is packetpushers.net slash Slack. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.